Zechariah chapter 3. Then the angel of the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to the Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, if you've been uh, um, with us, you will uh, know that, uh, in fact, Josh, uh, Zechariah has received a whole series of visions, the vision of uh, uh, horses. And we saw how, uh, it was the first one, and there were numbers of others, we saw how that actually was leading him to an understanding of Jesus. Let's pray that God will help us in chapter 3 to see that. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, look after us and uh, do that, Lord, by teaching us your word. And so, as we uh, learn from your word, teach us about yourself so that we can know you more confidently, more securely. Lord, we each have uh, our different... Uh, at different stages along the path of our lives and of our knowledge of you. For every one of us, Lord, whether it is the, the earliest stage or whether we are well down that path, we pray you, Lord, would show us more of yourself this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it um, seems to me, having lived a little while, that uh, life very often offers much and actually delivers very little. In this country, I think at least most of us have the basic essentials of life and food and, and shelter, but underneath that, actually in our world, there, there is a strong sense of disappointment with 
life in our society. They're more pessimistic about the future, for instance, than at any time in living memory. The uh, amount of time and money spent on counselling, on uh, antidepressive drugs and so on, continues to rise. We are not a happy society. Music and film explore that. Um, they explore dark subjects and often don't have happy endings these days. There are now health warnings actually on CDs if you go into the, the shops because of the graphic violence and extreme negativity of, uh, of many songs. Actually, as we get older and perhaps move away from those sorts of pop songs, we still actually are drawn to people who express disappointment. Many people in their 30s and 40s love Nick Hornby. If you read his books, they're very funny. But in a sense, there is still that darkness. There's, he's still, actually, it seems, trying to laugh it off, and yet not entirely successfully. In the art world as well, artists have been exploring the pain of our modern world for uh, uh, a number of years. For instance, um, look at uh, this. sculpture by a man called uh, Alberto Giacometti during the later part of his life after during and after the Second World War he uh, uh, spent uh, most of his time exploring the human condition and uh, he started to produce sculptures of thin emaciated weak people who were always uh, lonely and isolated in large spaces and he said this once. He said, I have never been able to picture the situation of man. If I could, no one could look at it because it is too horrible. And of course, actually, the picture that's become an icon of uh, uh, our modern uh, world is, uh, is this one. Edvard Munch's The Scream. You'll see it every, uh, every time you go down to the plane because there's a pub called The Scream that displays that picture on, on its wall. And of course, in that sense, it's a joke. But just like Nick Hornby, I think, we're trying to laugh about something which is actually very, very deeply painful in our world. One... Um, more modern artist who expresses that, that, that sense of pain very, very powerfully is Tracy Emin, who had a, an exhibition in Oxford recently. She uh, proclaimed herself, actually, in love with Munch, the artist who drew this uh, picture, and she's very much continued in that tradition. In one particularly graphic and shocking picture, she portrays herself exposed, vulnerable, dreadfully sick after an abortion. And above the picture, she scrawled this message. Something's wrong. Actually, if you can read it, less legibly above it, written backwards, are the words, terribly wrong. Underneath our brash, superficial masks, there is, that, there is that feeling amongst many people today. Something's wrong in this world. What is wrong? 
We feel uh, damaged, dirty, powerless, lonely in the world. We don't really know why. Life seemed to promise us much, but for so many of us, it has just not delivered. See, I think there's a sense in which Israel's public experience in Zechariah's day mirrors our private, personal experience today. They had been promised much. Their hope was that they would, they would rebuild their society, which had been devastated for a lifetime after they'd been exiled in Babylon. Their hope was that they would rebuild the temple and that would become the centerpiece of a new and glorious society which would embody all of their hopes. But actually, in Zechariah's day, life seemed to have promised much, but delivered very, very little. And through Zechariah, God has started to give them an extraordinary set of visions to encourage them. I mentioned just a moment ago those angelic riders on horseback surveying the whole world, reassuring Zechariah and his people. God is still in control of this world. God has made a promise to bless them and he will keep that blessing. Zechariah had this vision then of, of horns raised up and then overthrown promising that although there were enormous powers out there that could, uh, in a a moment, overthrow them, God was in control of them. Though he wasn't going to rebuild his society using those great powers. No, God was going to, to rebuild his great society of blessing by pouring out his blessing on the people apart from the use of those great powers. They weren't even going to need to build a wall around their city, says God, because the blessing that he gives will overflow the walls, so why build one? And the security that he gives will will far surpass the security that any wall around Jerusalem could give. So why build one? Zechariah was looking forward to the church. A time when God really would pour out his blessing abundantly. A time when God's people could live without walls, as we saw last week. Because he himself gives them their security. But what is that blessing? What is the blessing that God is going to give his people? Is it going to be wealth, health, happy relationships? So if we think that, and after a while, we will be as disappointed and confused as Tracy Emin and everyone else. Because the truth is, But Christians are not universally blessed in that way. And actually, even if we are, 
like so many others before, we would find that there's still an ache in our hearts. Something deep inside us that says, something's wrong with my world still. See, the next vision, this one in chapter 3 that Zechariah gets, is there to explain what the blessing is that God is going to give his people. What this blessing is that, that is just going to overflow throughout the whole world. We must understand, to understand this blessing, that Joshua, who is the central figure here, and uh, who has uh, all the, uh, the things happen to him, Joshua stands for God's people. He was the high priest. And as the high priest, he, he stood as a representative of God's people. What God does for Joshua, God will do for his people. What God does for Joshua, God promises to do for me and for you. The first thing that God promises to Joshua is forgiveness instead of guilt. Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The, the Satan was an official title. Um, uh, it's not absolutely clear uh, in this prophecy whether this is the devil, though I think from uh, later New Testament perspective we can say this is the devil. But as Zechariah saw it, he was the sort of official prosecutor in heaven. Like the Crown Prosecution Service. They don't let anyone um, who works for it hear that I said they were the devil incarnate. Um, they were the official prosecutors, Satan's. And actually, even in the Persian Empire, they acted as spies as well. They traveled around the countryside trying to spot anyone who was disloyal to the king and then dragging them before the courts to accuse them. This is what this heavenly Satan is doing. Zechariah is shown what happens in God's presence there. The Satan stands before God himself and then says to Joshua, here is the list of crimes against you, Joshua the high priest. Here is the list of crimes against you, ordinary person sitting in that seat. You thought you would never be exposed, didn't you? But I, the Satan, have sniffed out your secret thoughts, your hidden deeds. And I'm here before God to expose them. I am presenting them publicly in this court. And God is going to have to condemn you. Justice demands it. This person can never be forgiven. 
The reply from the angel is actually God's personal reply. So much God's word that uh, for a moment Zechariah drops the, uh, um, the picture of the angel speaking here and it's God himself. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. <coughs> is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? God says, I am not going to be bound by your accusations, Satan. I have chosen my people, and I will not let them be condemned. Yes, they may suffer in the short term from the consequences of their sin. They may be like uh, kindling which is too close to the fire and has got singed as they indulge in their foolish behaviour. But I'm not going to let them be consumed by that fire. I'm going to snatch them out of that fire. I'm going to stop the fire from destroying them. And you, Satan, will not have them. The prisoner in the dock can go free. If you're a Christian here this morning... That is God's promised verdict on you. And that is what we need more than anything else. The uh, secular humanist um, Marganita Lasky, who died a number of years ago, said shortly before she died, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. And that's actually what's wrong with us. Deep down in our hearts. We may search and search and search for some other solution which will, will set us free, but nothing else works. Yeah, I mean, the idea of guilt in today's world is actually particularly abhorrent to people because they see it as, as morbid and negative and a cause of most people's problems. And I have to say, it is. But that is unforgiven guilt. Unresolved guilt. Yes, if we simply try to deny it, if we try to brush it under the carpet, if we try to make it go away, if we listen to people who say, oh yes, you're a beautiful person anyway, and that guilt is just an illusion in your life, then it will eat away at us from within. Because at the deepest level in our hearts, we need someone to say, you are forgiven. And only God can do that. For non-Christians, guilt is a terrible foe, as Marganita Lasky said, because no one can forgive them. Perhaps there could be some resolution as we mend human relationships, as we try and put our life a little more in order. But the, the deepest level of our heart we know we are unforgiven. Something's wrong. When we meet God, you see, 
Yes, he says, we have to face up to what we are really like, to the accusations that Satan rightly brings before us. But he says, once you've faced up to that, then actually you can hear me say, I do not condemn you. You're forgiven. God offers us then, offers Joshua and of course therefore because he stands for us, us by extension, forgiveness for our guilt. Then uh, uh, the picture changes or moves on slightly. Here we learn, verse 3, that he offers glory instead of shame. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. I think that image is an image which resonates with so many people today. So many people uh, who I speak to describe themselves as dirty. It's as amazing how often that word comes up. Increasingly today, when you talk to people, they say that they put on a mask for the world around them. Because what they sense is going on inside is so disgusting and so abhorrent that if they took the mask off, they would feel the deepest shame. Well, here is Joshua with the mask off. Clothes spattered with dung. What will people think of that? What will God think of that as he stands before him? This stinking member of humanity. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. That's what God does. Because he forgives us, takes away our sin, he is actually able to restore our glory. The filth is removed, taken away. And we are restored to the glory that God intended us to have. God knows our shameful hearts and he forgives us. If God were to hang around us today, actually the visible representation of our sins, we would be deeply shocked, every one of us, as Zechariah is to see Joshua dressed in this way. We would be shocked about our neighbour, you would be shocked about me. But God says, I won't do that. God says, actually, those clothes that you have soiled are to be thrown away. And I give you a new set of clothes. And Zechariah gets so excited about it, he makes a contribution to this vision. Do you see that? Uh, verse 5, then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. It's tempting to think that this turban was part of the, um, 
um, ceremonial dress of, of the high priest, so that, so that Zechariah is saying, uh, um, reappoint him to being high priest properly, make, dress him properly as high priest. Actually, the, the word there is not for the sort of headdress that a high priest um, wore. It's the sort of headdress that actually people wore in the royal courts. So he's saying of, uh, of Joshua, make sure that he is fit to be seen in the best possible company. Even in the presence of God. He must be dressed in that way. And the angel of the Lord agrees. Yes. That's how we'll dress him. As royalty. That is how God will dress every single one of his people whom he has forgiven. As royalty. That is how he sees us now. Not according to the stains of sin that there are on us. But according to the fact that he has clothed us with Christ. So that now, our glory is greater than even it had was had we not sinned. He gives us glory instead of shame. But then something else happens. God adds a condition, verse 6. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Some, some people read verse 6 as a, as a great letdown. God removes our guilt and our shame, but then he says, earn it. I don't think that's what he's saying. For a start, this condition comes after God has forgiven and restored Joshua. It cannot be a condition... Um, um, given before God will do anything for us. And secondly, this is not actually a detailed set of laws that we have to, to, to follow one by one in order to make sure that we are forgiven, as if we could put ourselves right. Now what, what God is saying is, now that I have restored you, now that I have forgiven you, accept that. Walk with me. Walk in my ways. As Jesus said to, to his disciples, now come follow me. See, the one thing that is impossible for God to do is for God to forgive us and restore us whilst we are walking away from him. If we stumble, he can pick us up. If we fail, he can forgive us. But if we turn our backs on him and say, no, thank you, then his offer stays in his hand. 
and it never comes to us. If you follow me, this can be yours, he says. The rest of the Bible makes it plain. Those who are God's people will follow him. He constrains them to. He gives us his Holy Spirit in order to enable us to. He changes our hearts at the very deepest level so that now we long to follow him rather than longing to turn away from him. If God has done that for us, then we can be assured of his promise that our guilt is removed, our shame is thrown away. Zechariah's picture then moves on. Moves on in a quite fascinating way that we can only look at relatively briefly to something that clearly lies beyond his time. Verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. There is somehow going to be a, a, a future high priest who uh, um, uh, Joshua only stands as an anticipatory symbol of. And this future high priest is described using two words here. One is he is described as, as, as a branch. Uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a branch sprouting up. He was going to be a great king of Israel in David's line. Zechariah describes him as well as a, as a servant. Isaiah again spoke of God's servant, a mysterious man who will suffer for the sins of God's people. This future figure, whom Joshua stands as just a symbol of in one sense, is going to be priest, is going to be king, and he's going to be the one who suffers for the people. He's going to be Jesus. And here is my promise to Jesus, says, um, uh, says God. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. We, nobody quite understands what that stone <laughs> is that is set in front of uh, Joshua. But... Um, uh, the, it, perhaps the engraving on it is designed to allude back to the fact that the high priest had uh, uh, 12 stones engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel on it. So uh, these seven engravings perhaps symbolize the fact that all the world, seven being the number of completeness, all God's people in the world belong to this man. And he 
is going to be king of all of them. More than that, he is going to suffer in their place. See, that's why God could pronounce forgiveness on his people back at the beginning. That's why God could promise that he would remove their shame because he, in his son, would pay the price so that the accuser, Satan, was uh, silenced ultimately because God said, no, I have paid for the sins of that person so I can forgive them. Jesus himself took, off, took on our shame as well, ultimately being stripped naked and hanging on a cross so that he could pay for our sins. Amazingly, you know, this, pa- this passage says that, uh, that God will remove the sin of the land in a single day. If you read the uh, story of Jesus' death, it was his opponents who were desperate to get him dead and buried on the same day. Ironically, because they wanted to be clean the next day to continue celebrating a feast. But actually, they didn't know that they were making sure that this prophecy came true. That in one single day, Jesus would die for the sins of all his people. Before that day ended, he could cry, it is finished. And all his people would be forgiven. And then, you see, then what God promises his people could finally come true. Verse 10, In that day, each of you will invite his neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord. They uh, used sitting under the vine and fig tree as, uh, as, as symbols for peace and contentment and happiness because vines and fig trees take an awful long time to fruit. But all you have to do is wait long enough. You can sit and relax and enjoy its shade and enjoy your relationship with your neighbour because God makes those plants grow and God will make them fruit. He has done it. That is the position that we are in now. Every one of us. If we have come to follow Jesus Christ. God has forgiven all of our sin. Every bit of it. Satan has no accusation he can bring against us. God has removed all of our shame and clothed us in glory. God calls us, come, follow me. And if we do, we will find that something is terribly right in our hearts.
because we found what we long for. Forgiveness from God. And a sure and certain hope that one day we will be robed in splendor with King Jesus in heaven. And there will be no more sin. And no more pain. And no more mourning. And each one will say to his neighbor, come and sit under the fig tree and the vine and rejoice with me. Let's pray. As we prepare to take communion in just a moment, perhaps you have particular sins that you want to confess in order that they be open before God, though he saw them long ago. Now's your time.